This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. to chat with you, Russell. And today we are bringing to you listeners one of our quarterly books episodes. And this one is going to be particularly fun because we are talking about Russell Moore's Desert Island book list. Yes. (laughs) And and, and the the reason uh, for this is because uh, for those who subscribe to my newsletter, it comes out every Thursday, Mm -hmm. uh, we always do an alternating Desert Island bookshelf the books that you would want if you were stranded on a Mm -hmm. deserted island uh, and a desert island playlist, the songs that you would want to have with you uh, there. And so a lot of people said, well, what would be on your uh, desert island bookshelf? I don't think I did my desert island playlist yet, but on the desert island bookshelf. uh, And so I thought, you know what, let me put that together. And I never put it in the newsletter. So, so now it's a podcast. And now maybe we'll it'll talk also, about it here. Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. Well, you have 27 books. So we we don't See, worry. I didn't realize that. And that's a breaking of my own rules. I know. I know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. We will write them all in the show notes, but don't worry. This will not be a five hour episode, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us a little bit, you know, as we think about this idea of selecting a number of books that are meaningful in a person's life. Where did the idea of a desert island bookshelf come from? How long have you been asking? Is this like your party question? No, it's not a party question, but it's a question that I've been asked a lot Mm -hmm. uh, over Mm -hmm. the years. And I found it really is kind of illuminating to to a a person because with, with this kind of list, what we're not saying is, oh, these are the best books that have ever been written. Right. What we're saying is these are books that I needed at mm-hmm. just the time that I had them and that have persisted. I think what I what I did was to start off with books that are kind of signposts uh, mm-hmm. along my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so books that that at the time that I read them mm-hmm. were transformative. Yeah. So uh, Beekner's a, a Room Called Remember, uh, mm-hmm. for instance. I, I, yeah. I remember, no pun intended, but I remember <laughs> right. uh, exactly where I was when I mm-hmm. started reading this book and becoming captivated with it. I remember what it was like to have read to me uh, mm-hmm. and then to read on my own The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and The Hobbit. Uh, before the the mm-hmm. rest of the fel- fellowship, the ring and on, on and on from there, and then I, I thought about specific times. I mean, there was a there was a time when it was one of the darkest, probably the the darkest uh, time of my life, and I reread mm-hmm. uh, Brothers Karamazov, which I mm-hmm. had read before, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously, it's a great book. But that time, as I read it and read it slowly, it 
spoke to me in ways it never it never had before. And right. so that the, the, those were the sorts of things I kind of started with. And then I, I turned and said, you know, what are the books that I keep going back to? Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, I have right here beside me uh, at the desk all the time, uh, Baptist Hymnal. Yeah. Because those are the songs that shaped and formed me. So it's, it's right there. And that's, that's kind of how I started thinking about yeah. it. You know, I'm also struck with recently Colin Hansen's uh, kind of biography of Tim Keller, right? In, mm-hmm. in that it's about his reading, right? And, and, and his thinking and that books can really help us understand a person and understand how we were shaped. So I'm really excited to dig into some of these specifics. Yeah. And, and with Tim, uh, I, mm-hmm. every conversation I ever had with Tim was about books in right. addition to other things. Yeah. Uh, but, and that included, that includes um, when, when he was getting sicker and mm-hmm. I would want to, when he would call, I would want to talk about that. How yeah. are you doing? How are yeah. you? Whatever. Yeah. He would answer me, but then he would brush it off and want to start <laughs> talking about a new translation of Bavink or right. something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were able to talk about books, but we're not just talking about the books. We're talking about, we're talking about everything mm-hmm. that the books are, are showing us right. about what's going right. on uh, yeah. around us or sometimes what's going on inside of us. It's also true that because I don't consciously remember mm-hmm. uh, what I have read in the sense of knowing uh, for, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you say to me, uh, what, what did you read last week? I'm going to struggle to kind of remember that. Yeah. I'm going to remember what I read, but it's going to be in ways where I would say, where did that come from? And then I have to check my own notes. So a lot of times I'll go back and reread something and mm-hmm. it's almost as though it's new to me. But I also, there was a time when uh, there was a, a book that I had read. Um, I didn't even know that I had it in my library but I had read it 20 years before when I was mm-hmm. a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, not knowing that I had it, I bought it, I read it, I looked at, the, uh, looked at all the highlights and the markings. I mean, I found the original book, uh-huh. same highlights in the oh, exact no same places, no same markings in the exact same places. Um, and, you That's know, fun. I didn't remember all of that, but... Yeah. I'm still the same person. And so it right. speaks to me the same way. I yeah. Guess. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, I'm sure there's tons of books even on, you know, like margin, marginalia, right? And I'll find, you know, things I've marked up from college or something and go, oh, you know, who was that person, right? 20 yeah. years ago. And uh, I just did that recently with a with a book of poetry by Denise Levertov. Um, and so just going, oh, what were the lines that spoke to me? Yeah. So you do have on your list a few volumes of poetry and you have 11 um, pieces of fiction, which is pretty great. So you skew pretty heavy in the fictional category. You mm-hmm. have a few Walker Percy titles on there, Marilyn Robinson, um, Lewis, Dickens, Tolkien, Flannery O'Connor. So, you know, I, I love that. I think stories really kind of help us understand the life of faith and reality, maybe in a, in a experiential way, in the way that maybe some of our more nonfiction uh, skews a little bit head 
centric. So, you know, as we think about all of these books and we're just going to take a step back and think about fiction for a second. And and remember in the back, uh, because I have propped up behind it. Oh, I missed, I might've missed those. The Wind and the Willows and uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, yes. Which you have mentioned Where the Wild Things Are a lot on this ep- on this mm-hmm. show. So, um, which I love that you have like kid books on there too. I want to know, you know, which of these books um, have been formative for your family life as well? Um, and then how would you think, you know, as you think about all of the fiction kind of en masse, what would you encourage readers maybe who have kind of spent and listeners some time away from fiction about getting back in and where should they start maybe with one or two on your list? What I would say is don't get something and think, okay, I have to sit here and read this whole thing. (laughs) Read a little bit of it and see whether or not it speaks to you, whether or not it's, it's for you. And if it doesn't, put it down and Mm -hmm. get something, get something else. There are, there are all kinds of, um, there are all, all kinds of authors that I would say are good authors, but that aren't for me. Right. D- David Foster Wallace, I like some of his nonfiction occasionally. Mm-hmm. His fiction, um, I would rather, uh, I, I, I just would not choose to sit and read his, mm-hmm. his fiction. And, mm-hmm. and it's not that it's, oh, it's too, it's so bad. I don't do that. It's, uh, I remember, um, I think it was Seth Godin who said uh, a while back, he said, don't, when somebody says to you, I like this Mm -hmm. and you don't, the response isn't, oh, that's awful. The response Mm -hmm. is, it's not for me. Right. Uh, And and simply move on. Uh, So I I think start with something and see whether or not it speaks to you. For some of these writers, you can start with uh, a short story. And and see Flannery O'Connor, for instance. There, you you could, and Eudora Welty too. You could mm-hmm. start with virtually any of their short stories mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. get a feel for mm-hmm. where they're going. Mm-hmm. What do you see? You know, as you look at your through line of some of your fictional choices, or just the things that interest you, would you put any kind of bullet points around those? The things that speak to Russell Moore as a fiction reader. David Copperfield was important. Uh, early on, because I don't even know how I came across. I do know how I came across it, actually. Uh, there, There's a series of books, or there used to be uh, mm-hmm. when I was a kid. I don't even know if they're still in print, but they were abridgments of books. Mm-hmm. They had illustrations in them. It, it wasn't, um, but, but they were abridgments and they were uh, easy to to get through in that way. Right. But I would read those. So that would be um, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, short stories and Moby Dick and mm-hmm. Call of the Wild and Count of Monte Cristo and that sort of thing. Yeah. And David Copperfield and Oliver Twist were both in that uh, series. And I just, I really resonated with being able to look at uh, almost an entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with David Copperfield and, and to be able to get almost an aerial view. And I think, and I would not have said this as a, I mean, I think I was 11, something like that. I would not have said, uh, oh, uh, 
I'm getting an aerial view. I didn't know why it right. spoke to yeah. me, but yeah. it, but now I think that's what it is. That I was able to say, okay, I'm not just bound in this particular time. There's a there's a long game here, mm-hmm. and you're able to actually look at it and and see it. And mm-hmm. so that that um, really spoke to me. And then and then later, of course, I read the real uh, the real David Copperfield um, after that. After I'd read the abridged version, um, and then. Uh, I don't even remember when I started reading Wendell Berry, but it was long, long ago. I knew mm-hmm. I was reading Berry by the time that we moved to Kentucky. Yeah. Um, but and, and for some of these, uh, some of these books, you think I don't even remember really where I started. Mm-hmm. I just remember when there was a particular book of theirs that would kind of shake me and and say, pay attention to what I'm saying. Yes. Uh, And so with, with, for instance, with Barry, there's so many of them. I mean, almost every, um, almost every book of Wendell Barry. Sometimes there are a few of his short stories where he gets a little preachy Uh about agriculture (laughs) policy, Uh Uh, but that's rare. And, and and almost everything else was really important. But Jaber Crow I included on here because there were so many moments there that I just remembered uh, for a long time and, and really feel as though I knew those characters. So mm-hmm. when somebody says, you know, if I want to start reading Wendell Berry, where do I start? I always say, well, if you're looking at the uh, fiction, start with either Jaber Crow or Hannah Coulter. Yeah. Yeah. And either way and, yeah. and see if, see if it's for you. Yeah. There are all kinds of things by Dostoevsky that I would never reread. Right. Um, I mean, there, there are parts of Dostoevsky that I do find bleak. I mean, yeah. and, and I like melancholy things, mm-hmm. but they're, 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 uh, you know, a little too bleak for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Maria and I were uh, watching, um, uh, we were off by ourselves for the first time in a long time. And mm-hmm. uh, we're in a hotel room after we'd gotten back from a trip and we're going to watch a movie. And I watched, uh, we watched uh, Banshees of Ina Sharon, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, which was Academy Award. And uh, you know, it's a bleak it movie. It is. It is a And bleak by movie. the end of it, Maria said, I mean, even for an Enneagram 4. <laughs> And I said, yeah, but this isn't really an Enneagram 4 movie because we like melancholy about the passage of time and all that, not cutting off your fingers and throwing them at the door. (laughs) Uh, So Dostoevsky is like that. But Brothers Karamazov... There's uh, meaning to the suffering. Yeah. There's there's meaning to the suffering. And there's also, with Brothers Karamazov, you have both kind of this honest look Mm -hmm. at... The brutality of life. I mean, Ivan Karamazov, yep. who's the atheist uh, character, gives a speech about the non-existence mm-hmm. of God that is probably the most compelling argument mm-hmm. against theism mm-hmm. that's ever been uh, put down uh, mm-hmm. on paper, in my view. And Dostoevsky rejects that, right. but he doesn't reject it with arguments. He rejects no. it with some lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those lives being Elder Zosima, who's Mm -hmm. uh, that section I can read on its own 
mm-hmm. um, uh, over and over and over. And there are so many things in that that come to mind uh, mm-hmm. all the time. Everything's an ocean. It's con- connected yeah. to each other. Those yeah. those sorts of things come to mind. So, yeah, you, you don't don't read. Don't just go read Russian novelists. That is not <laughs> what I am saying to anybody. <laughs> What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You also have another category on your book list, you know, these sorts of first-person faith accounts. So I would put Frederick Beekner in there. We put Augustine's Confessions in there. Maybe Pascal's Pensees could also fit in there. Um, what do you, what do you, you know, as you think about wanting these kind of first-person stories of the life of faith, how might that as a category be buttressing to you? And, you know, would something that you would want if you were stranded on a desert island? You know, I don't know that I've ever thought about uh, tying them, what, what ties mm-hmm. them all together. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think probably what it would be is that there is a, a vulnerability to all of those mm-hmm. uh, books mm-hmm. and all of those mm-hmm. authors especially in America. Yeah. The redemption arc is yeah. uh, important. And I think that in all of those books there's a an already not yet mm-hmm. um sense of hiddenness and mystery in the redemption, the hidden glory. Mm-hmm. I think is present in all of those uh, mm-hmm. authors that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes there are some ways that we that we talk about things. And, and I mean, I'm talking about myself. There are, there are things that you don't say because you think that that would be discouraging to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you don't really talk about those times of darkness very much. You don't talk about those, those kinds of things. And so it can... We think sometimes that we're encouraging people and it ends up being very discouraging because people will, all that they see is the presentational uh, piece. And because of that, they think, well, something's wrong with me because uh, 
all of the other Christians that I know are joyful and triumphant. And I'm having to struggle and wrestle with Mm -hmm. fear and cowardice and doubt and anxiety and what have you. And sometimes even when we talk about those things in very general terms, people can think, yeah, but these people never dealt with what, how really bad it can get. Mm -hmm. And Augustine, Beekner, Lewis, uh, none, none of them hide that. Right, right, right. You know, how have how has that vulnerability helped you in some of your own darker moments? How have, how have these books been a companion for your, your own spiritual journey? Well, I've been uh, I've been prone to depression uh, in my life, and uh, Beekner, the way that he mm-hmm. uh, speaks of it as a hungering dark. Mm-hmm. Um, And you know, now that I think about it, and I've never really thought about this before, but there's a a large number of people here. I can think of two or three or four right off the top of my head on that bookshelf who who had fathers who died uh, Mm -hmm. early by suicide. Um, My dad did did not die by suicide. And didn't die when I was a kid, but we thought he was going to. He mm. he came very close to death when I was twelve. So maybe there's a temperament yeah. that yeah. that responds to Walker Percy and Frederick Beekner and and some of these others. And yeah. and maybe especially because one of the marvels in all of their in their lives. Mm. I mean, I think particularly Percy and Beekner, the marvel for them was that isn't what happened to me. Mm. It could have been. Right. Uh, and maybe people would have expected that to be. And if and if everything about life were just nature and nurture uh, mm-hmm. added up in some sort of a, a syllogism, then maybe that would be the case, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I've not thought about that before, but mm-hmm. there maybe go. there's something there. Yeah, I like it. And especially a particular kind of melancholy. I mean, for instance, right. I have uh, Eliot's um, Four mm-hmm. Quartets on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is another volume that I always have right around me. It's mm-hmm. it's right here over to the side of this uh, computer screen. And especially East Coker uh, of those poems. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a kind of um, treatment of, among other things, but the passage of time. Yeah. And um, I, I find that a lot of even the, the melancholy songs that mm-hmm. I return to. That's what they're about. Um, mm-hmm. They're about mm-hmm. that, that passage of time and, um, and losing people and, and not just that, but losing um, children growing up, those, those sorts of things. And so those poems really speak to, mm-hmm. to that particular kind of melancholy, which isn't Oh, I'm sad because my situation right. of what my situation is. It's oh, I'm I'm melancholy because I love this, mm-hmm. and I know that one day I'm going to lose it. Yep. More. And of course, Beekner uh, mm-hmm. talks about all's lost, all's yep. found. Yeah. Which is uh, which is an eminently Christian and biblical mm-hmm. way to to mm-hmm. look at it. Mm-hmm. But that's um, that's important as well. Mm. You know, as we think about 
poetry. You, we, you mentioned, Elliot, you also have the Polish poet on there, Milosz. And just tell, help us understand how we might engage with poetry or how you engage with poetry. I think oftentimes, right, in grammar school, we kind of are told about how we have to find iambic pentameter or like find the oh. meaning of a poem. And if you're not someone like us who maybe likes that sort of thing, that can feel... Not even I like that sort yeah. of thing. I did. I liked diagramming sentences. Sorry, <laughs> but the you know as we think about this, you know, poetry is is a whole new kind of way of looking at language. It's a different way of conceptualizing reality. What makes you come back to these two poets? There are certain poems that that speak to um, that that speak to existence in a way that the language really captures them. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when, when Eliot is talking about in uh, East Coker, he's talking mm -hmm. about the frustration of the fact that the words that he has, um, that, that he's, he's failing because every, every time he writes, it's a, a raid on the inarticulate. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a last year's words are are gone mm -hmm, and next mm -hmm. year's words you don't have. And so it's this sense of, um, of, of frustration and also with this sense of, um, anyway, it's, it's, it sums all of that up in a way mm -hmm. that's powerful mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And, and Milos, a uh, Lithuanian uh, poet whose, whose work I really love, both his uh, poetry and his nonfiction um, but but he will talk about um, he he's a he's really clearly conflicted mm -hmm. in the sense that he's a he's a Christian kind of uh -huh. but he he's somebody who lived through a totalitarian regime and he's somebody who's deeply suspicious of nature. And so mm -hmm. there's there's a lot in Milos that's sort of the opposite of the romantic view of right. of nature is mm -hmm. our friend. He sees it as I, I I in one of his poems he says he's speaking to nature and says I mm -hmm. used to love you before I knew what you were. Mm -hmm. And so he has this sense of nature as red and tooth and claw and predatory. Right. Yeah. And there's but there's but he's there are times when he's overcoming that. Yeah. Um, and so it's just sometimes you will find somebody where their particular work speaks to you. Mm -hmm. And there are other times where don't that there are there are all, all sorts of poems that friends of mine love that eh, they yeah. don't do anything for me. <laughs> That's true. I love it. <laughs> and we had Malcolm Guy on, so folks can go ahead and yeah. listen to that podcast oh, yeah. episode and pick up his some of his poetry, you know, for the church year is particularly easy and accessible for those yeah. of us who know know those stories right so that's a good you gotta tr pick like shallow entry points right and and uh Geit is so different from me mm -hmm. in the sense that um he can sit and recite uh having right. memorized yeah. entire poems and not just some but but lots of them i don't memorize uh poetry uh, but there are bits of poetry that get stuck in my brain mm -hmm. just from mm -hmm. reading them all the time mm -hmm. in the same way that I don't memorize scripture in the sense of sitting mm -hmm. down with flashcards and trying to memorize. 
I have a lot of scripture memorized from repeatedly inhabiting the scripture and Mm. returning to it. Mm. And so for some people that wouldn't work. For some people, you know, they really do need the flashcard and to work through. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not the way my mind works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how have you given such a wide variety of, of types of work on your list here? And again, listeners, they're in the show notes, so you can refer back. But, you know, as we think about that, how have, how has your reading and this broad reading informed your reading of scripture and scripture informed your reading of, of some of these favorite books that really have meant something to you? Well, it's, it's the, it's the latter more than the former because uh, I can't, uh, I can't overestimate what an effect, not just being in a, um, in a storytelling people, mm-hmm. the Eudora Welty story, I mean, that's, those are my people. Yeah. Uh, so a, a sense of, um, of stories were important and the telling and retelling of stories were mm-hmm. important, but also growing up with the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in a church, not that we, not, we weren't KJV only or anything like that. We really just didn't know there were any other options. Yeah. And so we had, and there is such a, uh, there's such a rhythmic and poetic power to the King James Version that I, I really think my entire life is in King James in some way. And I have to, mm-hmm. I have to kind of do like I do with, with, with scripture. I have most scripture memorized in KJV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just yeah. because of the, that time when it's like, it's like being a native language. And, and I'm sort of translating it out of that whenever right. I'm quoting scripture. And I think a lot of life is actually uh, like that for me. So when um, th- th- my wife was asking, she and a group of, um, she's, she and a group of um, women in our community were thinking through about maybe teaching writing to our kids. And she said, how did you learn to write? And I said, I didn't. I, 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 I yeah. There was no class that was teaching me to write. It was, I'm convinced, being mm-hmm. in the King James Bible all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I can look at even some of those um, some of those books that are meaningful to me. They're evocative of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the sense of, um, I think reading as much fiction as I always have has changed the way that I see the the emphasis of scripture mm-hmm. um, in terms of I, I I always talk about how um, it was illuminating to me when I was teaching preaching um, at a seminary, how many of my students would want to take narratives and change them into Pauline epistles or parables and change them into Mm -hmm. that. Because there was this unspoken assumption that what's really important are the abstractions. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think about uh, Marilyn Robinson in one of the Mm -hmm. Gilead books, I think, Mm -hmm. is where she was talking about 
the boys that she knew that were all named for biblical names, mm-hmm. Jacob and Isaiah, and Matthew, and the girls were all named for abstractions, faith, <laughs> hope, grace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there's a, a tendency to say, well, what's really real are the abstractions and just get rid of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. When actually, I think it's the other way around. And yeah. uh, Richard Hayes, in, um, in a, an amazingly important book, called uh, Echoes of Scripture in Paul, mm-hmm. goes through and demonstrates even the Pauline epistles are anchored in and rooted around narrative. Okay. Paul's, uh, Paul's assuming that people are familiar with a story in order to come in and to refer to the story mm-hmm. of Abraham, for instance, mm-hmm. in Galatians 3 or in uh, Romans 4, uh, to be able to say in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, our fathers, you remember, were baptized in the mm-hmm. cloud and baptized mm-hmm. in the sea. I mean, so, so all of that is rooted and anchored around that. And so there were times when I would say to somebody who was really struggling with preaching, but I think I would say the same thing to somebody who's really struggling with Bible reading, read some fiction yeah. and learn how to actually inhabit a story. Mm-hmm. And it and it will help you to to get what it is that's that's going on in in scripture, especially the way that Jesus, for instance, is using mm-hmm. um, is using parables. And it's not just Jesus; this is happening over and over again throughout the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does it look like to inhabit a story? I feel like right with our endless distractibility now, with smartphones and the internet and pings in our pockets. Um, yeah, what ways do you practice inhabiting a story again? You have to fight against that. I mean, yeah. um, I was just uh, reading um, a book the other day that was talking about um, the cultural landscape around us and about what what happens not just with that ping, ping, ping mm-hmm. of texts and emails and everything else and social media notifications that come to a person, what that does, you can't. You can't give attention to anything right. when you're pulled looking around at all mm-hmm. that. But also just the sense of what happens to us with, say, having access to Google, right? which is good. And, and it's, it's a very useful tool. But one's brain can start to think of it as an mm-hmm. external brain. Right. And, and you just, you, you don't have to look for this because... Um, it's always just available mm-hmm. right there. And I think sometimes people can do that with, say, Bible apps, um, right. even when they're not intending to. Mm-hmm. But but one's brain can just learn, well, mm-hmm. I don't have to keep this. I don't have to hide your word in my heart because it's always there right. in yeah. front That's of me. And I think point. you have to fight against that mm-hmm. and find those moments of attention and then see Notice the way that if you're if you're reading really good writing, mm-hmm. you're going to become unconscious of the fact that you're reading it at some right. point. And you're going to start at an imaginative level to to almost experience first person mm-hmm. uh, what's going on there, which is which is much different from just being told an abstraction about mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that 
Nathan saying to David, there was a man who had a sheep is a different experience than saying people who do bad things shouldn't do them. You know, so I think just fight against that and find those Mm -hmm. moments when you Mm -hmm. can actually give your attention. And what you're going to notice is at first, you're going to, it's going to seem impossible to do because you're going to read a little bit and you're going to be thinking, oh, I need to, I need to uh, check my email or I need to (laughs) wonder if anybody's texted me. That's fine. Just every time that happens, register it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm distracted again. I'm going to return to whatever this, mm-hmm. uh, this whatever it is that I'm giving my attention to. And over time, you'll get those muscles back. You know, the last kind of section, maybe we could say in your list is has to do with preaching particularly or you know, the, the pastoral office. You have um, a theology here by Ladd. You have um, Dr. Martin Luther King's collected sermons. You have Stott's book on Romans. Um, yeah, what does that look like to consider, you know, if you were stranded on a desert island and you were by yourself, what would these books on preaching to no one... <laughs> help you with. So it's obviously more than just, you know, that these are, these aren't just simply, you know, instructional books. With say, uh, Ladd and with King, those were both important to me at key times. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, George Eldon Ladd was um, massively influential on my theology and the way that I read the Mm -hmm. Bible. And so that's why he's there. Right, right. Yeah, and you so you have Peterson and King, I think, as your your collected sermons. So what 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 would you say about them as preachers that speaks to you particularly? Well, with King, uh, what you have are two things in in that preaching. You have um, you have an appeal to the conscience and to the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, that that really does believe that people's consciences can be reached, Mm -hmm. um, that that you really can be persuaded of something. But also there's that, what we were talking about uh, a little bit ago. I mean, King had a poetic power Mm -hmm. that came out of the King James Version. Yeah. Um, It came out of that knowing of scripture. And Mm -hmm. I mean, think of that, that famous address, the March on Washington, a lot of, even when there's not direct references, a lot of imagery from scripture, um, from the Declaration of Independence, uh, preamble of the Constitution, those things are kind of in the background there. Um, and with Peterson, what I would say is there's a, um, a poetic beauty to a lot of what, uh, uh, most of what uh, Peterson is writing about. And also he... He has a way of choosing an image that really helps you to to get mm-hmm. at what the real problem is. You also write books. So just as we are closing, tell us a little bit about maybe some of the journey of you moving from a reader to a writer. And what does that look like particularly 
you know, in this moment in time, you have losing our religion. With losing our religion, um, what that really was, was this just unbelievably chaotic time in evangelical Christianity. Um, I was finding myself having come through the, the Trump stuff and the racial injustice stuff and the sexual abuse mm -hmm. stuff and mm -hmm. the denominational avalanche collapse uh, sort of uh, stuff, mm -hmm. all of that and surviving it, <laughs> but having a lot of people that I'm talking to who were starting to think, okay, the choices that I have in front of right. me mm -hmm. are secularism and nihilism mm -hmm. or crazy. Right. And mm -hmm. I, would have, I would have myself coming in and saying, no, that's not what Christianity actually is about. And here's yeah. what it's about. And so whether I was talking to uh, a Christian, but who's kind of on the edge of just complete disillusionment, Mm -hmm. uh, or a non-Christian who was getting the wrong read on Jesus by what he or she had seen mm -hmm. in some of the worst aspects of the church. I, I needed to work through, yeah. Yeah. where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. And that's what losing our religion was. There is. Yeah. And is there a sense in which you've, it has helped increase your hope for American evangelicals? After on the other side? It completely did, although mm -hmm. um, not in the way that a lot of people expect. Right. So I think what a lot of people want is, okay, how do we get back to the way it used to be? Right. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the mm -hmm. people who are kind of nostalgic for the 50s or the 70s or something like that. I, I'm talking about people who, who would say, um, and this is my tendency to say, mm -hmm. you know, let's let's kind of rewind this thing to 2015, <laughs> right? And and uh, and that's not going to happen because uh, God really is doing something, and so mm -hmm. a lot of this painful pulling apart apart is exactly what Jesus said to us: unless a grain of wheat fall into mm -hmm. the ground and die. Mm -hmm. It abideth mm -hmm. alone, mm -hmm. uh, King James Version. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's what's happening mm -hmm. uh, with the church right now. And so it's a hopefulness, but it is a hopefulness that isn't about rewind. Right. Yeah. Right. That he is making all things new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Russell. It is Always a pleasure to chat, and especially to talk about books. It's really fun. So thank you for letting us into your books. It's been really fun to, to hear a little bit about how you've been formed by the books that you've read. Well, it was a fun conversation. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosbert. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. 
Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.